Section 30 of A History of Our Own Times, Volume 4 by Justin McCarthy. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Pamela Nagami. Chapter 59 Reformation in a Flood, Part 3. Lord Palmerston made precisely the same joke years after about Mr. Henry Barclay and his annual motion for the adoption of the ballot. He expressed a hope that when the inevitable hour came for Mr. Barclay to quit the scene of his mortal labours, his tomb might be made in the likeness of a ballot-box. Lord Palmerston evidently was not acquainted with Moore's lines about Mr. Grote, and was under the impression that he was making an original joke. In Mr. Barclay's hands, the ballot debate became less important than it had been with Mr. Grote. On one remarkable occasion, indeed, Mr. Barclay contrived to carry a sort of snap vote against the government. The division was taken unexpectedly in a very thin house, and eighty-six voted for the ballot and eighty against it. But nothing came of this, and the whole question seemed at one time in a fair way to be classed with Mr. Spooner's motion for the withdrawal of the Maynooth Grant, or Mr. Newdigate's appeal for the inspection of convents. Lord Palmerston used to argue complacently that the franchise was not a right but a trust, that the trust was exercised on behalf of the community in general, and that the voter was bound to discharge his duty in public so that those for whom he acted should know that he was acting fairly. This way of treating the question held out a temptation to long and futile controversy as to whether the franchise was or was not the right of a free man, and in what we may call the metaphysics of the subject, the really practical object of the discussion became lost. Lord Palmerston's description of the franchise did not in the slightest degree affect the argument in favour of the ballot. If the franchise was a trust, and only a trust, there was none the less necessity that the trustee should be so protected as to enable him to discharge his trust conscientiously and properly. The objection to the open vote was that, in a vast number of instances, the voter could not safely vote according to his conscience and his convictions. If he was a tenant, he was in terror of his landlord. If he was a workman, he was afraid of his employer. If he was a small shopkeeper in a country town, he was in dread of offending some wealthy customer. If he was a timid man, he shrank from exposing himself to the violence of the mob. In many cases, a man giving a conscientious vote would have had to do so with the certainty that he was bringing ruin upon himself and his family. In Ireland, the conflicting power of the landlord and of the crowd made the vote a mere sham. A man in many places dared not vote but as the landlord bade him. Sometimes, when he thought to secure his safety by pleasing the landlord, he ran serious risk of offending the crowd who supported the popular candidate. Voters were dragged to the poll like slaves or prisoners by the landlord and his agents. It was something worse than ridiculous to tell the House of Commons and the public that it was necessary such a system should be kept up because it enabled everybody to see that the voter properly discharged his trust. 
yet this argument about the trust and the need of publicity was almost the only piece of reasoning which for many years lord palmerston thought it worth his while to offer to the house of commons mr mill who had begun by advocating the ballot became an opponent of the system chiefly on the ground that it was unmanly to conceal one's vote this way of arguing the question only furnished one other illustration of the generous weakness which impaired the effect of much of mr mill's political and social philosophy the tendency to construct systems based on what burke called the heroic virtues the belief that human affairs can be regulated on the assumption that all men can not only become heroic but that they can be heroic always it would be a nobler world indeed if in the giving of our votes as in everything else we could all make up our minds to do right and to defy the consequences it would be a far finer sight for the moralist or the philosopher to see a concourse of irish tenants going openly to the poll to vote against their landlords and calmly accepting eviction as a consequence than to see the same men screened from the penalty of their patriotic conduct by the mechanical protection of the ballot the small shopkeeper who offended his most influential customer in the cause of what he believed to be the right would be a nobler subject for contemplation than the small shopkeeper enabled to do as he thought right without any risk or loss but an electoral system constructed on these lofty principles would be sure to turn out exactly as the open voting system proved to be a source of almost boundless demoralization it is curious to note that in one of the very speeches in which he condemned the ballot on this higher ground mr mill actually quoted with approval that sentence of profound practical philosophy in which burke declared that the system which lays its foundations in rare and heroic virtues will be sure to have its superstructure in the basest profligacy and corruption a change however suddenly took place in english public feeling the gross and growing profligacy and violence which disgraced every election began to make men feel that something must be done to get rid of such hideous abuses mr bright had always been an earnest advocate of the ballot system and partly no doubt under his influence and partly by the teaching of experience and observation mr gladstone became a convert to the same opinion in eighteen sixty nine a committee of the house of commons was appointed on the motion of mr bruce the home secretary to inquire into the manner of conducting parliamentary and municipal elections lord hartington was president of the committee its report was on the whole decidedly in favour of the principle of secret voting public opinion came round in a moment not many years had passed since the very words secret voting used to be considered enough to stigmatize the ballot and to make all true men disclaim any approval of it now under the impulse of that marvellous breath of reforming energy which was scattering so many ancient traditions the repugnance to the secret vote seemed to have disappeared we are speaking now of the public out-of-doors for a great many members of both houses of parliament were still unconverted mr forster's bill was stoutly resisted by the conservatives it was not merely resisted in the ordinary way its progress was delayed by that practice of talking against time 
which has more recently become famous under the name of obstruction a good many liberal members liked the ballot in their hearts little better than the tories did the bill contained a wise and just proposal for throwing the legitimate expense of elections on the public rates this was rejected in committee by a large majority a similar proposal it may be stated was introduced again and again in more or less differing forms during the progress of the ballot bills and it was invariably rejected the majority of the house of commons is composed of rich men the majority it is not unfair to say is composed also of men who are not recommended to their constituencies by great intellect or distinguished public services there will always therefore be many persons found to object to any change of system which tends to place a poor man and a rich man more nearly on a footing of equality in a candidature for a seat in parliament the long delays which interposed between the introduction of mr forster's bill and its passing through the house of commons gave the house of lords a plausible excuse for rejecting it altogether the bill was not read a third time in the commons until august eighth it was not sent up to the lords until the tenth of that month a date later than that usually fixed for the close of the session lord shaftesbury moved that the bill be rejected on the ground that there was no time left for a proper consideration of it and his motion was carried by ninety-seven votes to forty-eight the manner in which the measure had been dealt with in the house of commons made it seem clear to the lords that there was really a very general feeling of dislike to the ballot among the members of the representative chamber and emboldened them to think that they would be rendering a grateful service by throwing it out the house of lords was right enough in assuming that many members of the house of commons were not particularly anxious for the introduction of the ballot the proposal of the government was welcome to the voters in general but it was naturally regarded with hostile feelings by many men who felt small assurance that their seats would be safe if the franchise were to be exercised by every one in security and independence the ballot was introduced we do not hesitate to say in defiance of the secret prejudices of the majority of the house of commons which consented to pass it mr gladstone was determined to pass it in the interest of the voters of political independence and of public morals he was now as thoroughly convinced as mr bright himself that the ballot in these countries would be the very keystone of political independence recent publications have enabled us to know that on one occasion at least lord palmerston did all he could privately to encourage the house of lords to reject an important measure introduced and passed in the commons by his own chancellor of the exchequer mr gladstone this fact which would be incredible if it were not made known upon authority impossible to question was not likely to furnish an example which mr gladstone would follow mr gladstone accepted the decision of the lords as a mere passing delay and with the beginning of the next session the ballot came up again it was presented in the form of a bill to amend the laws relating to procedure at parliamentary and municipal elections and it included of course the introduction of the system of secret voting the bill passed quickly through the house of commons those who most disliked it began to see that they must make up their minds to meet their fate when the bill went up to the lords an amendment was introduced into it with the view of making the ballot optional 
this preposterous alteration was of course objected to by the commons and finally the house of lords gave it up there would obviously be no protection whatever for the class of voters whom it was necessary to protect if the ballot was made simply optional the tenant who exercised his option of voting secretly against his landlord might just as well have voted openly the landlord would not be slow to assume that the secrecy was adopted for the purpose of giving a vote against him at the instance of the house of lords however the ballot was introduced as an experiment and the act was passed to continue in force for eight years that is until the end of eighteen eighty we may anticipate matters a little by saying that no measure of reform introduced through all that session of splendid reforming energy has given more universal satisfaction or worked with happier effect than the ballot there is indeed much still to be done to purify the electoral system the ballot has not extinguished corruption in small boroughs it is still perfectly possible to carry on the most demoralizing system of bribery there the plan of what we may call payment by results still flourishes in many a small constituency it is quietly given out that if a certain candidate be elected there will be money flowing through the borough after the election and every voter who is open to corruption goes to the polling place determined to vote for this candidate because he knows that his vote adds to the chances of the borough's coming in for the refreshing golden shower probably nothing could put a stop to the corruption in very small boroughs but their utter disfranchisement or some system which would group several of them into one constituency but in all other objects sought by the ballot act it has been successful it has put an end to an enormous amount of corruption and it may be said to have almost altogether extinguished the illegitimate influence of the landlord the employer and the patron during a debate on women's suffrage in eighteen seventy one mr gladstone stated that if the ballot were once introduced there would be no harm done by allowing women to vote nearly ten years have passed since that remarkable declaration and the proposal to extend the franchise to female householders does not seem to have made much practical progress but it must be admitted that the adoption of the ballot makes a great difference in the conditions of the controversy it was one thing to ask that women should have imposed on them the duty of going up to the open poll and recording their votes in public and quite another thing to ask that they should be allowed to enter a quiet compartment of the polling-place and record an independent vote under the saving shelter of the ballot the university tests bill was one of the great measures carried successfully into legislation during this season of unparalleled activity the effect of this bill was to admit all lay students of whatever faith to the universities of oxford and cambridge on equal terms this settled practically a controversy and removed a grievance which had been attracting keen public interest for at least five-and-thirty years gradually the restrictions which oxford and cambridge drew around their systems of education had been relaxed dissenters had been admitted first to the advantages of education within the sphere of the universities and next to the honours which success in the university course was fitted to command twice over within a very few years 
had a measure for the purpose been carried through the commons only to be rejected by the lords in this busy year of eighteen seventy one the liberal government introduced the bill again and this time after some remonstrances and futile struggle the conservative majority in the house of lords allowed their prejudices to succumb and affirmed the principle of religious equality in the distribution of the honours which the two universities have to reward to those who win success as students within the sphere of their teaching the government also passed a trades union bill moderating as has already been shown the legislation which bore harshly on the workmen they established by act of parliament the local government board a new department of the administration entrusted with the care of the public health the control of the poor law system and all regulations applying to the business of districts throughout the country the government repealed the ridiculous and almost forgotten ecclesiastical titles bill the popularity of mr gladstone's government was all the time somewhat impaired by the line of action and even perhaps by the personal deportment of some of its members mr lowe's budgets were not popular and mr lowe had a taste for sarcasm which it was pleasant no doubt to indulge in at the expense of heavy men but which was like other pleasant things a little dangerous when enjoyed too freely one of mr lowe's budgets contained a proposition to make up for deficiency of income by a tax on matches it seems not unlikely that the whole proposition first arose in mr lowe's mind in connection with a pretty play upon words which he offered as its motto ex luce lucellum he suggested should be a device imprinted on every taxed match-box the joke had to be explained its humour wholly vanishes when it is put into english a little profit out of light not much drollery in that surely the country laughed at the joke and not with it the match trade rose up in arms against the proposal it was shown that that trade was really a very large one employing vast numbers of poor people both in the manufacture and the sale especially in the east end of london and it was proved that the imposition recommended by mr lowe would put out the light most effectually all the little boys and girls of the metropolis whose poor bread whose miserable lucellum depended on that trade arose in infantile insurrection against mr lowe there were vast processions of matchmakers and match-sellers to palace yard to protest against the tax the contest was pitiful painful ludicrous no ministry could endure it long mr lowe who had not the slightest idea when he proposed his tax of being regarded as a worse than lucifer by the vendors of lucifer matches was only too glad to withdraw from his unenviable position it was not pleasant to be regarded as a sort of ogre by thousands of poor little ragged boys and girls mr lowe had ventured on the proposal chiefly because of the example of the united states where the whole system and social conditions were so different from ours as to afford no guarantee whatever that a tax which is found endurable by the one community is likely to be found endurable by the other he withdrew his unlucky proposal along with his ill-omened joke and set himself to work to repair by other ways and means the ravages which warlike times had made in his financial system 
no particular harm was done to anybody but the government they were made to seem ridiculous the miserable match tax was just the sort of thing to impress the popular mind as something niggling paltry and pitiful mr lowe did not hear the end of it for a long time the attempt and not the deed confounded him another member of the administration mr ayrton a man of much ability but still more self-confidence was constantly bringing himself and his government into quarrels he was blessed with a gift of offence if a thing could be done either civilly or rudely mr ayrton was pretty sure to do it rudely he was impatient with dull people and did not always remember that those unhappy persons not only have their feelings but sometimes have their votes he quarrelled with officials he quarrelled with the newspapers he seemed to think a civil tongue gave evidence of a feeble intellect he pushed his way along trampling on people's prejudices with about as much consideration as a steamroller shows for the gravel it crushes even when mr ayrton was in the right he had a wrong way of showing it End of section thirty